Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 12, Here Come the Franks. Last time, we left King Desiderius of the Lombards doing very well, thank you very much indeed. He had put the Pope in check, he had reached a balance with the Franks thanks to marriage alliances, and he had even got control over his own Lombards, which perhaps was the most difficult part. We left off asking ourselves what could possibly go wrong. And the answer is, well, everything. And it could go very, very wrong. Things kicked off with Desiderius's daughter, Ermengarda, wife of Charles of the Franks, the future Charlemagne, being repudiated. It's not quite clear why this happened, possibly because she couldn't give him a son, or maybe simply because he had fallen in love with the woman that would be his next wife, Hildegard. Now, Desiderius was not at all happy with the situation. Aside from a personal insult, it really messed with the alliance balance. At this point, he had a pretty good idea of how to stick it to Charles. Let's take a step back and set up his idea. If you remember from the last episode, at the death of Pepin the Short in 768, the Frankish reign had been divided between his two sons, Charles and Carloman, with their mother, Bertrada, trying to keep the peace between the two. Well, this delicate balance lasted three years. Then, in 771, Carloman died in mysterious circumstances, leaving Charles as the sole ruler. It was more or less at this time that Charles decided to put his wife aside. While we're on the topic of broken marriage promises, the widow of Carloman, Gerperga, had sought refuge in Pavia with the Lombards, and the Lombard king's son, Adelchi, who was promised to Charles's sister, Gisela or Gisela, fell in love with Gerperga. What a soap opera, eh? Days of our medieval lives sort of thing. Now, Desiderius thought that a very good way to get back at Charles would be to have the Pope crown the two sons of Carloman, but the Pope refused. Now the Pope in question was no longer Stephen III, but Hadrian I, and he had had to overcome the resistance of the pro-Lombard faction in Rome to be elected Pope. This meant that he was not at all well disposed to Desiderius, and indeed he refused to lift a finger to help the king, also citing the fact that the Pope had not yet had all the lands promised back. This was the last straw. Desiderius readied an army and made his way down to Rome. Thinking that the situation that had meanwhile developed with the Franks, i.e. Charles needing to consolidate his single rule, would keep those nosy neighbours out of his hair. Desiderius took the cities of Ferrara, Comacchio and Faenza, he continued his conquest in 772, taking the cities of the Pentapolis, the heart of the old Byzantine exarchate of Ravenna, Forli, Forlimpopoli, Classe, and Cesarea. The Pope once again turned to his new protectors, and, as his father had done, Charles was ready. 
He first attempted a diplomatic route, also involving the Lombard dukes, who, as always, were quite ready to jump ship, and eventually would when things started to go down south for the Lombards. For Desiderius, on the other hand, things were too far gone. He had crossed the Rubicon, or the Po in this case, but there was no going back. Yet another Frankish Lombard war had started, but this time all sides were playing for keeps. The year was 773. Charles mustered his army in Geneva and marched into the northwest of Italy, into the Susa Valley east of the city of Turin. At this point, all sources seem to agree on the fact that he was initially blocked in the Val Susa at the Chiuse, a series of fortifications which used the natural landscape of the Alps to create a formidable series of fortifications that had been very wisely strengthened by Desiderius. So, let's leave old Charles, well, he wasn't old at this point, but let's leave Charles there for a sec, scratching his head and wondering how to get by. Now allow me to try your patience with yet another digression to talk about Alessandro Manzoni. I mentioned him briefly in the last episode. He was an Italian writer, or better, one of the Italian writers, all capitals. You could probably place him in the Olympus of Italian literature, along with Dante, Boccaccio and Petrarch, although having written at the beginning of the 19th century, his time was long after these illustrious predecessors. His most famous novel, Promessi Sposi, The Betrothed, has plagued generations of schoolchildren, just like Shakespeare in England. Now, I imagine you're wondering at this point what on earth I'm doing warbling on about a guy who came over a millennium after the events we're narrating. Well, he also wrote a less famous tragedy in five acts called Adelki. Now, I've been chucking names at you quite a lot, so you'll be completely forgiven for not remembering that Adelki was the son of King Desiderius, who had also raised him to the throne. I've said this before about other kings, but what by Jove does it mean? Well, basically, they were both kings, more or less on the same level. Joint kings, you might say. Indeed, we have donation documents, for example, that bear the names of Desiderius alone, some of both Desiderius and Adelchi, and some of the two men along with Queen Ansa. Anyway, Manzoni is one of the sources for what we're about to discuss, and although he's not necessarily the most reliable source, he's definitely the most dramatic, and therefore interesting. Now, let me first tell you what really happened, and then, with the help of Alessandro Manzoni's Adelchi, we'll have a peek at the more interesting and dramatic, albeit less reliable, version. As we said, Charles was blocked in the Susa Valley, but that was not his only army. Indeed, another part, under the command of his uncle Bernard, entered Italy through the Gran San Bernardo and into the Aosta Valley, meeting very little resistance until he met an army commanded by Adelchi, which he easily defeated. Adelchi sought refuge in Verona, along with the widow of Charles's brother Carloman and her children. Meanwhile, news of the defeat of Adelchi reached the Lombards in the Susa Valley, and they retreated to Pavia, closely followed by Charles's troops, who had meanwhile overcome the defences in the valley. 
the Franks started a siege of Pavia that would last from October 773 to June of the following year. Verona, instead, fell as soon as the inhabitants saw the Franks coming. Gerperga and her children were captured, and Adelchi managed to escape, possibly to Constantinople, and we'll leave him there for a moment, or wherever he ended up. Meanwhile, Charles took the opportunity to have a little holiday in Rome and to have a peek, perhaps, at what he was fighting for. He was received with great honor. One important event during this visit was that on the 16th of April, 774, he confirmed the donation of Pepin, legitimizing the creation of the Papal States. He got back to Pavia in time for the city to fall. Desiderius was taken prisoner along with his wife, and they spent the rest of their days in a monastery in France, fasting and praying. Now, Let's go back on that, thanks to the pen of Alessandro Manzoni for an alternative version. There is Charlemagne, blocked in the Sousa Valley in front of the formidable defences of the Lombards. I imagine something a bit like Frodo and Sam at the gates of Mordor. You have to say it like that, Mordor, because Gandalf does and not Mordor. His spirits are low. He cannot find a way out and the powerful son of the Lombard king Adelchi has wreaked havoc on the Frankish troops with his quick sorties out beyond the walls, with his powerful sword or club, possibly. Charles is just about to give up, much to the dismay of the papal representative, Peter, when from behind them a lone figure makes his way towards their camp. The man is Martin, deacon of Ravenna, and he tells them, that he has made his way unchallenged around the Lombard camp, which is completely undefended in the rear, and found his way along a hidden mountain path that God himself has shown him. Charles loses no time in sending a party of his best men back along the path. The scene breaks to the Lombard camp. Desiderius and Adelchi are conversing when Lombard soldiers start to bring news that the Franks are upon them. Men run back and forth in every direction. Desiderius and Adelchi get separated, and Desiderius is convinced to flee. Adelchi wishes to go and seek out Charles himself, but he also is finally convinced to run away. Desiderius regroups with some of his dukes in a nearby wood. The king is in angst, worried about his son and reeling from the defeat. He rues the day in which King Alwin ever led the Lombards into Italy. Quote, Damned be the day when upon that mountain did Alwin climb, and looking down he said, This land is mine. End quote. At this point in the tragedy, things change more from what actually happened, and Manzoni has Pavia falling before Verona, and Desiderius being taken captive to Verona. Meanwhile, we also see how Ermengarda ends up. I'm not quite sure what really happened to her. One source simply states that she wasn't allowed to go home, another that she ended up with her sister Anselperga in the monastery, and a third source simply says that she melted away into the fogs of time. Manzoni has her dying in her sister's arms for some unknown reason, 
Sort of like Natalie Portman dying in Star Wars Episode 3, you know, just because she didn't want to live anymore. In any case, she has no further part to play in our story. Whether she was actually called Ermengarda or Desiderata or whatever. So, back to the action. A last stand ensues in Verona, in which Adelchi is mortally wounded, but lives long enough to be brought to Desiderius and Charles. When the anguished father blames himself for the death of his son, Adelchi answers that it is not he who is responsible, neither you nor he, indicating Charles, but the lord of both. But there is no accusation in this, but acceptance, and in the end, after asking Charles for clemency for his father, he feels peace fall upon him and dies. In truth, we don't really know when Adelchi met his end. Another source mentions that he lived long enough in Constantinople to be granted an army which landed in the south of Italy and that Adelchi died in the ensuing battle. Whatever the case may be, the year 774 was the end of the Lombard kingdom. It had lasted just over 200 years. The Lombards themselves didn't disappear. Their disunity, flexibility, and the fact that many dukes had already jumped ship meant that they were not all immediately replaced by Frankish counts. The laws set out by the Lombard kings continued to be used for centuries to come, and records show descendants of Lombard families up until the 10th century and beyond. Perhaps, if things had gone differently, they could have been the ones to start the process of nation-building that the Franks had started in what in time became France. On the other hand, there was one element that was very different in Italy, and that was the Popes of Rome, who have had an influence over the Italians to this day. Next time, we'll look at the Catholic Church, which has come to play such a prominent role in our story. After that, we're going to have a recap episode to go over the 300 years of history we have covered so far. I think it's a good time to stop and collect our thoughts, because for a while now, to understand the history of Italy, we're going to have to keep looking outside of her borders. And when the time comes to look back in again, things will be very different indeed. So, it's time to say goodbye to the Lombards for now. I will miss them. Before we close, I just wanted to say a quick hello to Jennifer B, who got in touch via Facebook. Hello, Jennifer. And it's always great to hear from the listeners. Really encouraging. Thanks very much. As always, thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch and leave a comment or suggestion or a question, you can get in touch at hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. On that same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can have a look at the website where you can also find our Facebook page and our YouTube channel, as well as a series of other resources that can help you focus a bit better on what we've done in Italian history so far. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate and review the podcast. And once again, until next time, thank you for listening and arrivederci.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.